Hello, I'm Jennifer Hansen, and you're listening to Take a Breath, a series where we ask some of the amazing people who work within our Free 02 community to sit with us, take a breath, and tell us their stories. We'll hear all about the passions, heartaches, hopes, and fears of our friends who dedicate their lives to bringing breath to others. This year, Take a Breath with 302 has initiated a three-year gender equity strategy with the aim to improve health outcomes for women and girls in low-resource settings and make advances towards the UN goal of achieving gender equality and empowering all women and girls. In this season, we'll be speaking with three incredible women from across Africa who are working in healthcare and advocacy spaces to enhance the lives of girls and women and make advances towards achieving gender equality. Our first interview in this series is with Umrah Omar. Now, Umrah's achievements are incredible. It really will take hours to do her story justice. So I've got the challenge of trying to tell you the most important bits and then condensing our interview into around 20 minutes. So let's give it a go. Umra grew up in Kenya in the Bajuni community. And she says that her father was her biggest role model growing up because of his kindness to people and to animals. She has very fond memories of her childhood and of being raised by the whole village. At the age of 17, she was admitted to the UWC Atlantic College in Wales. Umra was then awarded a scholarship at Oberlin College in Ohio, where she completed her degrees in neuroscience and psychology, as well as pursuing a master's degree in social justice. When Umra returned to Kenya, she learned about the country's health crisis, and then she decided to do something really important to help. She started up Safari Doctors in 2014. She has received much global recognition since, and in 2016, Umra was selected as a CNN hero then also recognised in 2017 as the 2017 UN Person of the Year. Umra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jennifer. It's a pleasure. It must, you must be such a busy person with all the work that you are juggling. Is time management a big part of your life? I think it's a big part of any woman's life. So it's just about making time. Nobody ever has time, but once we decide what we want to make time for, then it's much easier. True. Well, let's go back to the beginning. What inspired you to start Safari Doctors? Was it hard to take on that challenge being a woman in Kenya? Safari Doctors was a very organic experience. So it felt very natural when uh, I met a colleague who was um, operating a project uh, called Sailing Doctors, which had to close down due to the insecurity in Lamu. We'd had uh, some kidnappings in 2011, and then there was a terror attack in 2014. So it was a matter of just reviving a project that already existed, but with a sense of urgency and a sense of home and commitment. So we started with just um, myself and a nurse on a motorbike. So just two very, you know, um, uh, maybe yeah. even naive uh, people, for lack of a better yeah. word. And it's organically just grown into being, you know, uh, an organization and NGO that's um, about two dozen staff, staff almost. So yeah, it's just very fluid from 100 patients a month to about 3,000. As a woman, it was a little bit easier on the healthcare treatment side because you could really relate to the issues around maternity, around kids getting their vaccinations. So it's, it's what you experience personally, but you're able to extend that privilege um, to somebody else. So 
it's it's not been as you know as daunting as maybe it looks on the outside it sounds like a bit of an adventure getting on a motorbike and traveling around the country saving lives but i think in real life as you said um not only are you dealing with a you know shortage of resources uh, all the conflict and danger involved it, it makes it a, a very dangerous mission really in a way doesn't it we have a very passionate, committed local team. So that's why I strongly believe in uh, local solutions for local challenges. So for a lot of the, you know, from our boat captain to our program coordinator, the nurse, it's people where this is home um, versus how a lot of philanthropy or humanitarian work usually happens is by bringing in um, support or aid from the outside, which then is held hostage by the travel advisories that we have by, you know, the curfews and everything. Mm -hmm. So it's just making it, it's very personal. It's very personal. Mm -hmm. I do really like the name, Safari Doctors. That's great. What inspired you to pick that name? The word safari has been hijacked um, mm. to mean luxury, um, that holiday that everybody wants to, to, to go on, whereas yes. it's a Swahili word meaning journey. And the one thing that's hurting a lot of people is the journey in accessing healthcare. That's what costs more, that's what is dreaded, and that's what affects rural communities. So our idea is that a sick person should not be the one making a safari to get healthcare. It's how do we get our health infrastructure to make the journey and bring healthcare to the first mile um, of communities and also changing that narrative around last mile health because we're, we're using our privileged selves as, uh, as the center of reference versus saying, you know, kill the safari because it's not fun, it's not exciting, um, uh, it's very costly for somebody that is unwell and needs to make a trek, let's say from Lamo, from the northernmost coast coming to the hospital, is a $300 speedboat ride. Wow. Or for somebody yes. going to purchase a two, $4 medicine, it costs them $30 to get there. So that's what, what the word was inspired. My sister came up with that word. She's like, you know what? It's about traveling and delivering healthcare. And Umrah, you love to travel and you love healthcare. So let's put that together. Yeah, it sounds great. Um, and when it comes to healthcare, in particular, you are a passionate advocate for women's health. What are the biggest challenges that you're facing right now with your work with Safari Doctors? The biggest challenge is that the understanding of the world healthcare. Healthcare is not the curing of illness. Healthcare is the prevention of illness. And the biggest subject in this matter is a woman and her child because when you look at a lot of the services that we need it's not because we're sick if you look at you know vaccination if you look like antenatal care if you look at just preventative just raising a child whether it's you know brush your teeth or hygiene or wash your hands so the challenge that we have is the policies and the resourcing around health service delivery. Um, as Safari Doctors, we try to leverage this a lot through um, philanthropies, which is obviously not a sustainable model. Um, and we are constantly navigating travel to get to these areas. Um, uh, so we have a huge um, challenge in our own mobility infrastructure, whether it's the, you know, the vehicles, the boats, like it's, it's where we're almost like a logistics health 
um, facility. So our big challenge is ensuring that sustainability and how to make it into a model that can be um, scaled. You mentioned vaccination. Is COVID vaccination a priority right now? Honestly speaking, not really, because um, we have, you know, we ha there's been so much more challenges in getting to these rural areas. Like you can only get a COVID vaccine at the main hospital, wow. um, where only what maybe only. 10% of our population to 15 is around the main healthcare facility. So the big, the bigger challenges are around nutrition. The bigger challenges are around um, the regular ailments that the community faces. You know, there's places where even getting a painkiller is a challenge, let alone getting a COVID vaccine. So frankly speaking, it's, you know, yeah. Very challenging. And you, yeah. you moved back to Kenya from New York when you started Safari Doctors. Was that a really big cultural change for you, the adjustment? Not really, because I didn't, I didn't plan on moving here. So I came and just kept on extending a two month holiday. By the time I realized that I lived here, it was like a year later <laughs> and, my son, and my son didn't know anything else. So it was very, because I remember literally we came 2014 stayed the whole of 2015 until November is when I went back to New York. I was like, maybe I need to pack up the apartment because I might not be coming back. Do you miss New York? Not at all. Not a day. There's not, it's been seven years and there's not a single day where I felt like I need to be anywhere else other than in Lamo with Safari Doctors. It worked out for the best then, definitely. So tell us about the health, more about the health struggles that these women face. I think in, in particular, I read your concern about menstrual rights, how it affects young girls' education. So what barriers do women in particular face when they're trying to access health care? The biggest barrier is, um, is a disease called poverty. Um, the biggest barrier is... Um, how our institutions prioritize, let alone in rural Africa. But when you look at even our very developed world and the taxes that are there on female hygiene products, um, yet you go into a bathroom and there's like, you know, there's free condoms everywhere. It's like, where are our priorities when it comes to the health of women as well? So for instance, here, it's just not the extreme version of that where, it's what determines um, if a girl will be able to go to school that week or not. Um, it's what determines, you know, what should I spend my, ma my money on hygiene products or on food? Um, we have remote villages where even if you had the money, maybe there's no store in sight um, to be able to, to get the products. So we have a lot of... Um, self-questioning to do as uh, systems, as organizations on how we get to that first mile um, and bring these vital services that include you know, the vaccinations and the female um, hygiene products, sensitizing our schools um, as well around that. So it's obviously going to take a long time, but do you feel like you've made some inroads at all in terms of those areas you were talking about with hygiene and products and girls being able to put education we, personally as safari doctors i think we we haven't 
and I, I am not proud in saying that we have never really prioritized um, that because um, of the sustainability factor. Um, we've done it as one of occasions, you know, we had one trip where um, the company always brought down like a truck. Um, we've had a really good partnership with Organic Cup, um, although it's a little challenging getting the menstrual cup um, uh, 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 take up rates due to cultural realities um, around, you know, the taboo around virginity and everything. Um, but some of those solutions have, even if it's like five people, you know, that's five lives that you've uh, you've touched in in doing that. So there's more. There's much more that we can do around it. Much more. Do you find it yeah. very rewarding your work? I sleep well every night. That's wonderful. And on a personal note, how do you balance the work you do with being the mother of two small children? Um, it takes a village. It really <laughs> does take a village. Um, I'm at home. I live in Lamu. We're here with the two kids, whether it's the luxury of being able to have uh, childcare. We have, I started a school, which is in my front yard with 35 kids. So that also... Mm takes off the burden of thinking of you know commute and are they okay are they having challenges in school so they're really spoiled building that buffer system around them my parents are two islands away so sometimes I just ship them off um, to go and spend some granny time and then having a really strong um, team that's very independent so I don't have to I don't do any micromanaging at all um, so yeah, it's all about systems, building systems that kind of are self-sufficient. What about the medical oxygen situation in Lamu? Because I've heard that in many of the communities where you work, there are high rates of children with cerebral palsy because they don't have access to oxygen during birth. Is it a problem? So where we, um, let's say in Lamu County, a population of just 200 150 to 200,000 were spread across 6,600 kilometers by the Somali border. They are infrastructural realities that force us to not even question some of the essentials that we do not have. Um, especially when you're talking about neonatal um, products from um, the healthcare level is dissolved to a dispensary level, which is usually just tended by a nurse. Um, and the schedule is based on that. A lot of dependence on your traditional um, birth attendants um, who are yet to be fully um, trained and equipped um, to address some of these issues. So access to oxygen, especially for, for the young, it's, it's almost like a fairy tale for lack of a better word. It should, it. It should be something that's, you know... It should be a necessity. So you have, like, that one village that we're talking about that we're really concerned where a lot of CP conditions and a lot of them due to, um, you know, lack of oxygen um, at birth. What does that mean? It just means that it's a, a, a fate complete that's kind of been accepted, which is the... The saddest part of the work that we do is that there's this kind of, it's not even giving up hope. There's just this kind of, what can you do? And if there's nothing that you can do about it, then you just accept it as it is. And access to um, oxygen at birth is one of those things. Do you think working, and this is not, um, I suppose, you know, you said it's like a fantasy, but if you were able to have access to medical oxygen, 
what would that mean for, for women and mothers? For us as safari doctors, it would mean being able to have that mothership or that vessel that would have these essentials and can move around to where um, uh, to, to where it's most needed. So in an ideal situation, I see us having a vessel that's equipped where you can have your deliveries on board if, and we, we can track, you know, there are these many deliveries in these areas. Um, in case of anything, we're here. If, if, they, it's, if it's an issue with oxygen, we have it. If it's an issue with like uh, a hemorrhage or blood supplies, you know, we have it. Um, that would be the the dream world um, and also at the dispensary um, level it's having um, access to such products as well what about how realistic is is another question and with the COVID pandemic how has that also affected your work and, and what is the situation currently in Lamu with COVID at first, um, I remember in March, April, actually, it, uh, 2020, it was a major panic mode. From the trainings to access to wash stations, we put up the billboards, the flyers. Um, we had a case in the office where we had to close down for a week. Um, and then life started kicking back in. Access to food. Kids are not in school. You know, so it's like all these now horrible side effects of the COVID pandemic started kicking in until today where I would say um, the poverty pandemic has kicked back in and shut down the COVID pandemic for, for lack of a better analogy, where, you know, people are more worried about the daily survival as opposed to the pandemic, especially here in a place like Lam. Yeah. Well, at least you are managing to do some great work with safari doctors. So that must give you some hope, I suppose. And for other girls too, they would look to you probably as a role model. So what would your advice be to young girls in, in Kenya or in Africa more broadly who might like to be the founder of, of an organisation like you have done? Is that um, success of anything that you do lies when you step out of your comfort zone um, and that um, nobody is as you know powerful as you are yourself and that is not something to be feared that is not something for anybody to 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 turn off so I would say that um, don't take no for an answer and education was obviously a big part of your success, being able to travel and get a scholarship. Is that something, a path that's also open to them? Um, it's not, uh, it's not, as, uh, not as many fortunate young girls. Um, I just very, very um, privileged to have education um, as that key to all the doors. But nowadays with the free primary education in Kenya, with all the online learning that's happening, you know, it's a totally different world where it's just a matter of having that curiosity and that drive um, to really push through. Yeah. And who have been your female role models over the years? Who's been my role model? Uh, very cliche, my parents. <laughs> they come from this village, but they've created the world and then they've moved right back to that village and, and are continuing to create the world that they want to live in. And more recently, though, my biggest uh, role model right now is uh, 
Madam Ellen Sirleaf Johnson because I we just had a nice weekend with her and I'm totally mind blown, totally mind blown what at the power in a woman from a, from a conflict country, a two-time president, the only democratically elected president on the continent, female. So quite something. Well, I understand you're also looking at stepping into politics and that you may be stepping down as executive director of Safari Doctors to run for governor of Lamu. What do you hope to achieve if you win office? When you win oh, office, Jennifer, I can say. When, not if. I like that you're doing <laughs> a lot of things around, Jen. Um, so I really look forward to changing the face of leadership and showing how we can step up um, to the mantle. We're talking of a 21st century that's in need of um, inclusive policies, that's in need of um, new ideas, innovative ideas versus the, the same, you know, the same centralized model and authoritarian model of leadership. When I look at healthcare, we're looking forward to having policies that recognize and compensate community health workers. Um, looking forward to having a creative sector industry as well um, in Lamu County and going beyond the, you know, going beyond the, the hard labor um, the, uh, force uh, in a county. So there's a lot of excitement pulling in and leveraging new partnerships, um, making Lamu a national and an international, um, you know, flagship county. Now, you're one of the youngest women in Kenya to ever run for governor. Have you come across any barriers as a young woman attempting to move into politics? Oh, my God. The double standards in this patriarchal domain is mind-blowing. Oh, yes. <laughs> mind-blowing where you can have a male counterpart that literally shoots someone point-blank and, 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 and they will have people who stand up to them. But you would have a smear campaign to like Timbuktu and back around, you know, what you're wearing, who you talk to, how you're sitting. And it's, it's mind blown. Do you think the world would be a better place if there were more women in positions of power? Jennifer, that's not even a question because we have moved from the Flintstone age of muscles and um, hunting. And we are now in... Um, across cultural, more around diplomacy, more around sensitivity, more around inclusivity. So all these traits that we see um, are female traits. It's more about nurturing um, the next generation. So yeah, definitely, 500%. Let's talk about the many awards you've received. You've been named CNN Hero and in 2017, UN Person of the Year. What do those accolades mean to you? Um, the accolades more than myself, but also the team, it just means that we're in the right direction. I don't think we would be where we are if it wasn't, let's say, for the CNN Hero Award, um, let alone as an organization, but even personally to be running for office. There's a sense of, it gives you that credibility, it's like a stamp of not necessarily approval, but it's like a certification stamp. It's the same thing as your college degree. Um, so it's open one door after the other, which is what brought on board. It's what's allowed our work to be seen um, worldwide, to bring on new partners. We have a lot of support from family philanthropies that, um, you know, have been compelled by that story that we're weaving every day. Yep. 
So if you win office as governor, you'll be based, I suppose, long term. When you win office, you'll be <laughs> based long term in Kenya. Where do you see yourself in 10 years time? The only way to go is upwards, right? So in 10 years time, what we are able to do at village level, now go at county level, um, national, international, the idea is that in every space where we have, there's even been the lightest insinuation that a woman shouldn't be there, we're going to be there. Excellent. What do you, what, when you look at other female leaders, are there any in particular who you admire? Like I say, the one that comes closest to home is the former president of Liberia. Um, it's the one that really resonates with the narrative of, um, you know, culturally, contextually as well, um, with what Liberia was going through. So, um, yeah, and, and it's just getting our story. There's also downstairs in Tanzania, we have Madam Samia Suluhu, Tanzania's female president from Zanzibar. Um, again, because all these are very close narratives. When you look at, you know, Zanzibar and Lamu, you're like, there's no reason that um, Kenya could not have a female woman president um, when, you know, a female Muslim woman or um, a, a young, I don't know, Maasai girl that could one day be the president of, uh, of Kenya. So there's, uh, there's definitely a lot of room. Australia's a very philanthropic nation. Is there anything you can think of that you could say to Australians that, would, uh, that you'd like them to help with in terms of either health or your political goals? This is going to be very specific and I won't mention names. I would not be able to run for office for governor if it wasn't one special Australian guy, a very, very good friend um, who's been supportive in kind and monetary and like, you know, um, and, and just encouragement. And then another Australian woman who's been very keen on safari doctors work where we've built a veterinary center. Um, we have an, a social enterprise because of her unrestricted support and just super proud every day that we can actually show the impact of what um, she's done. There's a Planet Wheeler Foundation um, that has been a, a big gem. So actually Australia is very, is very dear and personal to me personally and to safari doctors and because of the nature of giving in Australia, I found is very different from anywhere else um, that we've worked with in the world. Because there's a sense of soul, like it, it's, less, um, it's less technocratic and it's more of like, um, it's, it's less about just checking off boxes and more about connecting with humanity and seeing us all as being interconnected. That's a feeling that I've gotten out of it. It's very heartwarming. I like hearing that. Yeah. That's wonderful. And the other, lastly, just to wrap up the interview, for Australia all around the world, it's been a very challenging time during the pandemic. How have you held on to hope during these tough times? It's the silver lining. What do you do in that space of hardship? because um, life is hard. Giving birth is painful, but then it's like the outcome of it is, is, is nothing you could ever imagine. Um, there's another poem that talks about even a tulip breaking through the ice cold ground is very, very painful. 
but then what comes out of it is priceless afterwards. So for me, um, COVID allowed us to, let's say, professionally realign our priorities. It's what made us hire an in-house medical person because doctors couldn't travel anymore. It's what allowed us to open a medical facility. So it's like in that difficult time, what is it that you would put a spotlight on? Um, is it what's brought us closer to our families? Um, is it what has forced us to, as petty as it might sound, read the book that we never read? So in life, everything will just depend on which part of the picture you point your spotlight on. Good advice. And I hope that Australians continue to be generous. I hope that you win office as governor of Lamu. And I do hope that when you win office, I'll be able to interview you again about all the wonderful things you are achieving that will change the lives of women and young girls for the better. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time. Really thank you, Jennifer, and for um, Frio too, it's just to give a big shout out to that um, groundbreaking innovation and for providing such spaces as well to take a breath. Yes, so important, isn't it? Thank you. Wishing you all the best with your future endeavours. Thanks, Jennifer, you too. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our podcast. In this current context of COVID-19, accessible oxygen supply is critical. A hypoxic child cannot survive seven minutes without constant oxygen supply. That's how quickly a baby's life is lost. And that's why Frio2 have made it their mission to keep the oxygen flowing, even when the power cuts out. Please like, share and subscribe to this podcast. You can also follow us on our website, www.frio2.org or on Facebook at Frio2, Instagram and Twitter at Frio2AU and LinkedIn at Frio2 Foundation Australia. Thanks for listening.